Chapter Twenty Seven of Miss Mackenzie by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter Twenty Seven, The Negro Soldiers' Orphan Bazaar. In the spring days of the early May, there came up in London that year a great bazaar, a great charity bazaar on behalf of the orphan children of negro soldiers who had fallen in the american war tidings had come to this country that all slaves taken in the revolted states had been made free by the northern invaders and that these free men had been called upon to show their immediate gratitude by becoming soldiers in the northern ranks as soldiers they were killed in battle or died and as dead men they left orphans behind them information had come that many of these orphans were starving and hence had arisen the cause for the negro soldiers orphan bazaar there was still in existence at that time down at south kensington some remaining court or outstanding building which had belonged to the great international exhibition and here the bazaar was to be held i do not know that i can trace the way in which the idea grew and became great or that any one at the time was able to attribute the honour to the proper founder. Some gave it all to the Prince of Wales, declaring that His Royal Highness had done it out of his own head, and others were sure that the whole business had originated with a certain philanthropical Mr. Manfred Smith, who had lately come up in the world, and was supposed to have a great deal to do with most things. Be that as it may, this thing did grow and become great, and there was a list of lady patronesses which included some duchesses, one marchioness, and half the countesses in London. It was soon manifest to the eyes of those who understood such things that the Negro Soldiers' Orphan Bazaar was to be a success, and therefore there was no difficulty whatsoever in putting the custody of the stalls into the hands of proper persons. The difficulty consisted in rejecting offers from persons who undoubtedly were quite proper for such an occasion. There came to be interest made for permission to serve, and boastings were heard of unparalleled success in the bazaar line. The Duchess of St. Bungay had a happy bevy of young ladies, who were to act as counter-attendants under her grace, and who so happy as any young lady who could get herself put upon the Duchess's staff. It was even rumoured that a certain very distinguished person would have shown herself behind a stall, had not a certain other more distinguished person expressed an objection. And while the rumour was afloat as to the junior of these two distinguished persons, the young ladydom of London was frantic in its eagerness to officiate. Now at that time there had become attached to the name of our poor Griselda a romance with which the West End of London had become wonderfully well acquainted. The story of the lion and the lamb was very popular. Mr. Maguire may be said to have made himself odious to the fashionable world at large, and the fate of poor Margaret Mackenzie, with her lost fortune, and the additional misfortune of her clerical pledged protector, had recommended itself as being truly interesting to all the feeling hearts of the season. Before May was over, gentlemen were enticed to dinner-parties by being told, and untruly told, that the lamb had been secured. 
as on the previous year they had been enticed by a singular assurance as to Bishop Colenso. And when Margaret on one occasion allowed herself to be taken to Covent Garden Theatre, every face from the stalls was turned towards her between acts. Who, then, was more fit to take a stall, or part of a stall, at the Negro Soldier's Orphan Bazaar, than our Griselda? When the thing loomed so large, lady patronesses began to be aware that mere nobodies would hardly be fit for the work. There would have been little or no difficulty in carrying out a law that nobody should take a part in the business who had not some handle to her name, but it was felt that such an arrangement as that might lead to failure rather than glory. The commoner world must be represented, but it should be represented only by ladies who had made great names for themselves. Mrs. Conway Sparks, the spiteful poetess, though she was old and ugly as well as spiteful, was to have a stall and a bevy, because there was thought to be no doubt about her poetry. Mrs. Chaucer Munro had a stall and a bevy, but I cannot clearly tell her claim to distinction, unless it was that she had all but lost her character four times, but had so saved it on each of those occasions that she was just not put into the index expurgatorius of fashionable society in London. It was generally said by those young men who discussed the subject that among Mrs. Chaucer Munro's bevy would be found the most lucrative fascination of the day. And then Mrs. Mackenzie was asked to take a stall, or part of a stall, and to bring Griselda with her as her assistant. By this time the lamb was most generally known as Griselda among fashionable people. Now Mrs. Mackenzie was herself a woman of fashion, and quite open to the distinction of having a part assigned to her at the great bazaar of the season. She did not at all object to a booth on the left hand of the Duchess of St. Bungay, although it was just opposite to Mrs. Chaucer Monroe. She assented at once. "'But you must positively bring Griselda,' said Lady Glencora Palliser, by whom the business of this mission was conducted. "'Of course I understand that,' said Mrs. Mackenzie. "'But what if she won't come?' "'Griseldas are made to do anything,' said Lady Glencora, "'and of course she must come.' Having settled the difficulty in this way, Lady Glencora went her way, and Mrs. Mackenzie did not allow Griselda to go to her rest that night, till she had extracted from her a promise of acquiescence, which, I think, never would have been given, had Miss Mackenzie understood anything of the circumstances under which her presence was desired. But the promise was given, and Margaret knew little or nothing of what was expected from her, till there came up, about a fortnight before the day of the bazaar, the great question of her dress for the occasion, Previous to that she would have feigned to be energetic in collecting and making things for sale at her stall, for she really taught herself to be anxious that the negro soldiers' orphans should have provisions made for them. But, alas, her energy was all repressed, and she found that she was not to be allowed to do anything in that direction. "'Things of that sort would not go down at all nowadays, Margaret,' said Mrs. Mackenzie. Nobody would trouble themselves to carry them away. There are tradesmen who furnish the stalls, 
and mark their own prices, and take back what is not sold. You charge double the tradesman's price. That's all. Margaret, when her eyes were thus opened, of course ceased to make little pincushions, but she felt that her interest in the thing was very much lowered. But a word must be said as to that question of the dress. Miss Mackenzie, when she first was interrogated as to her intentions, declared her purpose of wearing a certain black silk dress which had seen every party at Mrs. Stumfold's during Margaret's little bath season. To this her cousin demurred and from demurring proceeded to the enunciation of a positive order. The black silk dress in question should not be worn. Now Miss Mackenzie chose to be still in mourning on the 2nd of June, the day of the bazaar, her brother having died in September, and had no fitting garment, so she said, other than the black silk in question. Whereupon Mrs. Mackenzie, without further speech to her cousin on the subject, went out and purchased a muslin covered all over with the prettiest little flecks of black, and sent a milliner to Margaret, and provided a bonnet of much the same pattern, the gayest, lightest, jauntiest, falsest, most make-believe morning bonnet that ever sprang from the art of a designer in bonnets, and thus nearly broke poor Margaret's heart. "'People should never have things given to them who can't buy for themselves,' she said with tears in her eyes, "'because, of course, they know what it means.' "'But, my dearest,' said Mrs. Mackenzie, "'young ladies who never have any money of their own at all always accept presents from all their relations. It is their special privilege.' "'Oh, yes, young ladies, but not women like me who are waiting to find out whether they are ruined or not.' The difficulty, however, was at last overcome, and Margaret, with many inward upbraidings of her conscience, consented to wear the black freckled dress. "'I never saw anybody look so altered in my life,' said Mrs. Mackenzie, when Margaret, apparelled, appeared in the Cavendish Square drawing-room on the morning in question. "'Oh, dear, I hope Sir John Ball will come to look at you.' "'Nonsense! He won't be such a fool as to do anything of the kind.' "'I took care to let him know that you would be there,' said Mrs. Mackenzie. "'You didn't.' "'But I did, my dear.' "'Oh, dear, what will he think of me?' ejaculated Margaret. "'But nevertheless I fancy that there must have been some elation in her bosom "'when she regarded herself and the freckled muslin in the glass. "'Both Mrs. Mackenzie and Miss Mackenzie "'had more than once gone down to the place to inspect the ground "'and make themselves familiar with the position they were to take. "'There were great stalls and little stalls, which came alternately, "'and the Mackenzie stall stood next to a huge centre booth, at which the Duchess was to preside. On the other hand was the stall of old Lady Ware, and opposite to them, as has been before said, the doubtful Mrs. Chaucer Monroe was to hold difficult sway over her bevy of loud nymphs. Together with Mrs. Mackenzie were two other Miss Mackenzies, sisters of her husband, handsome middle-aged women with high cheekbones and fine brave-looking eyes. All the Mackenzies, except our Griselda, were dressed in the tartan of their clan. 
and over the stall there was some motto in Gaelic, De Hu de Heith Donald de Hooth, which nobody could understand, but which was not the less expressive. Indeed, the Mackenzie stall was got up very well. But then was it not known and understood that Mrs. Mackenzie did get up things very well? It was acknowledged on all sides that the lamb, Griselda, was uncommonly well got up on this occasion. It was understood that the ladies were to be assembled in the bazaar at half-past two, and that the doors were to be thrown open to the public at three o'clock. Soon after half-past two, Mrs. Mackenzie's carriage was at the door, and the other Mackenzies having come up at the same time, the Mackenzie phalanx entered the building together. There were many others with them, but as they walked up they found the Countess of Ware standing alone in the centre of the building, with her four daughters behind her. She had on her head a wonderful tiara, which gave to her appearance a ferocity almost greater than was natural to her. She was a woman with square jaws and a big face and stout shoulders, but she was not, of her own unassisted height, very tall but of the tiara and its altitude she was proud, and as she stood in the middle of the stalls, brandishing her umbrella-sized parasol in her anger, the ladies, as they entered, might well be cowed by her presence. "'When ladies say half-past two, said she, "'they ought to come at half-past two. "'Where is the Duchess of St. Bungay? "'I shall not wait for her.' But there was a lady there who had come in behind the Mackenzies, whom nothing ever cowed. This was the Lady Glencora Palliser, the great heiress who had married the heir of a great duke, pretty, saucy, and occasionally intemperate, in whose eyes Lady Ware, with her ferocious tiara, was simply an old woman in a ridiculous headgear. The Countess had apparently addressed herself to Mrs. Mackenzie, who had been the foremost to enter the building, and our Margaret had already begun to tremble. But Lady Glencora stepped forward, and took the brunt of the battle upon herself. "'Nobody ever yet was so punctual as my Lady Ware,' said Lady Glencora. "'It is very annoying to be kept waiting on such occasions,' said the Countess." "'But, my dear Lady Ware, who keeps you waiting? "'There is your stall, and why on earth should you stand here "'and call us all over as we come in, like naughty schoolboys?' "'The Duchess said expressly that she should be here at half-past two. "'Who ever expects the dear Duchess to keep her word?' said Lady Glencora. "'Or whoever cared whether she does or does not,' said Mrs. Chaucer Monroe who, with her peculiar bevy, had now made her way up among the front rank. Then to have seen the tiara of Lady Ware, as it wagged and nodded while she looked at Mrs. Monroe, and to have witnessed the high moral tone of the ferocity with which she stalked away to her own stall with her daughters behind her, a tragic comedy which it was given to no male eyes to behold, would have been worth the whole after-performance of the bazaar. No male eyes beheld that scene, as Mr. Manfred Smith, the manager, had gone out to look for his duchess, 
and, missing her carriage in the crowd, did not return till the bazaar had been opened. That Mrs. Chaucer Monroe did not sink, collapse, among her bevy, must have been owing altogether to that callousness which a long habit of endurance produces. Probably she did feel something, as at the moment there came no titter from any other bevy corresponding to the titter which was raised by her own. She and her bevy retired to their allotted place, conscious that their time for glory could not come till the male world should appear upon the scene. But Lady Ware's tiara still wagged and nodded behind her counter, and Margaret, looking at her, thought that she must have come there as the grand duenna of the occasion. Just at three o'clock the poor Duchess hurried into the building in a terrible flurry, and went hither and thither among the stalls, not knowing at first where was her throne. Unkind chance threw her at first almost into the booth of Mrs. Conway Sparks, the woman whom of all women she hated the most, and from thence she recoiled into the arms of Lady Hartletop, who was sitting serene, placid, and contented in her appointed place. Opposite, I think, Duchess, Mrs. Conway Sparks had said, we are only the very small fry here. Oh, ah, I beg pardon, they told me the middle to the left. And this is the middle to the right, said Mrs. Conway Sparks. But the Duchess had turned round since she came in, and could not at all understand where she was. Under the canopy, Duchess, just whispered Lady Hartletop, Lady Hartletop was a young woman who knew her right hand from her left under all circumstances of life, and who never made any mistakes. The Duchess looked up in her confusion to the centre of the ceiling, but could see no canopy. Lady Hartletop had done all that could be required of her, and if the Duchess were to die amidst her difficulties, it would not be her fault. Then came forth the Lady Glencora and, with true charity, conducted the lady-president to her chair, just in time to avoid the crush which ensued upon the opening of the doors. The doors were opened, and very speedily the space of the bazaar between the stalls became too crowded to have admitted the safe passage of such a woman as the Duchess of St. Bungay. But Lady Glencora, who was less majestic in her size and gait, did not find herself embarrassed. And now there arose, before the general work of fleecing the weather-lambs had well commenced, a terrible discord, as of a brass band with broken bassoons and trumpets all out of order, from the further end of the building, a terrible noise of most unmusical music, such as Bartholomew Fair in its loudest days could hardly have known. At such a diapason one would have thought that the tender ears of Mayfair and Belgravia would have been crushed and cracked and riven asunder, that female voices would have shrieked, and the intensity of fashionable female agony would have displayed itself in all its best recognized forms. But the crash of brass was borne by them as though they had been rough schoolboys delighting in a din. The Duchess gave one jump, and then remained quiet and undismayed. If Lady Hartletop heard it, she did not betray the hearing. 
Lady Glencora for a moment put her hands to her ears as she laughed, but she did it as though the prettiness of the motion were its only one cause. The fine nerves of Mrs. Conway Sparks, the poetess, bore it all without flinching, and Mrs. Chaucer Monroe, with her bevy, rushed forward so that they might not lose anything of what was coming. "'What are they going to do?' said Margaret to her cousin, in alarm. "'It's the play part of the thing. Have you not seen the bills?' Then Margaret looked at a great placard, which was exhibited near to her, which, though by no means intelligible to her, gave her to understand that there was a show in progress. The wit of the thing seemed to consist chiefly in the wonderful names chosen. The King of the Cannibal Islands was to appear on a white charger. King Cronanhatanthologus was to be led in chains by Tom Thumb. Achilles would drag Hector thrice round the walls of Troy, and Queen Godiva would ride through Coventry, accompanied by Lord Burgley, and the ambassador from Japan. It was also signified that in some back part of the premises a theatrical entertainment would be carried on throughout the afternoon. The King of the Cannibal Islands, with his royal brother and sister, Cronanhatanthologus and Godiva, taking principal parts. But as nobody seemed to go to the theatre, the performers spent their time chiefly in making processions through and amidst the stalls, when, as the day waxed hot and the work became heavy, they seemed to be taken much in dungeon by the various bevies with whose business they interfered materially. On this, their opening march, they rushed into the bazaar with great energy, and though they bore no resemblance to the characters named in the playbill, and though there was among them neither a Godiva, a Hector, a Tom Thumb, or a Japanese, nevertheless, as they were dressed in paint and armour after the manner of the late Mr. Richardson's heroes, and as most of the ladies had probably been without previous opportunity of seeing such delights, they had their effect. When they had made their twenty-first procession, the thing certainly grew stale, and as they brought with them an infinity of dirt, they were no doubt a nuisance. But no one would have been inclined to judge these amateur actors with harshness, who knew how much they themselves were called on to endure who could appreciate the disgusting misery of a hot summer afternoon spent beneath dust and paint and tin-plate armour, and who would remember that the performers received payment neither in éclat nor in thanks, nor even in the smiles of beauty. "'Can't somebody tell them not to come any more?' said the Duchess, almost crying with vexation towards the end of the afternoon. Then Mr. Manfred Smith, who managed everything, went to the rear, and the king and warriors were sent away to get beer or cooling drinks at their respective clubs. Poor Mr. Manfred Smith! He had not been present at the moment in which he was wanted to lead the Duchess to her stall, and the Duchess never forgave him. Instead of calling him by his name from time to time, and enabling him to shine in public as he deserved to shine, for he had worked at the bazaar for the last six weeks as no professional man ever worked at his profession, the Duchess always asked for somebody, 
when she wanted Mr. Smith, and treated him, when he came, as though he had been a servant hired for the occasion. One very difficult job of work was given to him before the day was done. "'I wish you'd go over to those young women,' said the Duchess, "'and say that if they make so much noise I must go away.' The young women in question were Mrs. Chaucer Monroe and her bevy, and the commission was one which poor Mr. Manfred Smith found it difficult to execute. "'Mrs. Monroe,' said he, "'You'll be sorry to hear that the Duchess has got a headache, "'and she thinks we might all be a little quieter.' "'The shouts of the loud nymphs were by this time high. "'Pooh!' said one of them. "'Headache, indeed,' said another. "'Bother her head,' said a third. "'If the Duchess is ill, perhaps she had better retire,' said Mrs. Chaucer Monroe. Then Mr. Manfred Smith walked off sorrowfully toward the door, and, seating himself on the stool of the money-taker by the entrance, wiped off the perspiration from his brow. He had already put on his third pair of yellow kid gloves for the occasion, and they were soiled and torn and disreputable. His polished boots were brown with dust. The magenta ribbon round his neck had become a moist rope. His hat had been thrown down and rumpled. A drop of oil had made a spot upon his trousers. His whiskers were draggled and out of order, and his mouth was full of dirt. I doubt if Mr. Manfred Smith will ever undertake to manage another bazaar. The Duchess, I think, was right in her endeavour to mitigate the riot among Mrs. Monroe's nymphs. Indeed, there was rioting among other nymphs than hers, though her noise and their noise was the loudest, and it was difficult to say how there should not be riot, seeing what was to be the recognized manner of transacting business. At first there was something of prettiness in the rioting. The girls who went about among the crowd, begging men to put their hands into lucky bags, trading in rosebuds, and asking for half-crowns for cigar-lighters, were fresh in their muslins, pretty with their braided locks, and perhaps not impudently over-pressing in their solicitations to male strangers. While they were not as yet either a-weary or habituated to the necessity of importunity, they remembered their girlhood and their ladyhood, their youth and their modesty, and still carried with them something of the bashfulness of maidenhood. And the young men, the weather lambs, were as yet flush with their half-crowns, and the elder sheep had not quite dispensed the last of their sovereigns, or buttoned up their trouser-pockets. But as the work went on, and the dust arose, and the prettinesses were destroyed, and money became scarce, and weariness was felt, and the heat showed itself, and the muslins sank into limpness, and the ribbons lost their freshness, and braids of hair grew rough and loose, and side-locks displaced themselves. As girls became used to soliciting, and forgetful of their usual reticences in their anxiety for money, the charm of the thing went, and all was ugliness and rapacity. Young ladies no longer moved about, doing works of charity, 
but harpies and unclean birds were greedy in quest of their prey. "'Put a letter in my post-office,' said one of Mrs. Munro's bevy, who officiated in a postal capacity behind a little square hole, to a young man on whom she pounced out and had caught him, and brought up almost with violence. The young man tendered some scrap of paper and a sixpence. "'Only sixpence,' said the girl. A cabman could not have made the complaint with more finished accent of rapacious disgust. "'Never mind,' said the girl. "'I'll give you an answer.' Then, with inky fingers and dirty hands, she tendered him some scrawl, and demanded five shillings postage. Five shillings,' said the young man. "'Oh, I'm deed.' Then he gave her a shilling, and walked away. She ventured to give one little halloa after him, but she caught the Duchess's eye looking at her, and was quiet. I don't think there was much real flirting done. Men won't flirt with draggled girls, smirched with dust, weary with work, and soiled with heat. And especially they will not do so at the rate of a shilling a word. When the whole thing was over, Mrs. Chaucer Munro's bevy, lying about on the benches in fatigue before they went away, declared that, as far as they were concerned, the thing was a mistake. The expenditure in gloves and muslin had been considerable, and the returns to them had been very small. It is not only that men will not flirt with draggled girls— but they will carry away with them unfortunate remembrances of what they have seen and heard. Upon the whole it may be doubted whether any of the bevies were altogether contented with the operations on the occasion of the Negro Soldiers' Orphan Bazaar. Miss Mackenzie had been perhaps more fortunate than some of the others. It must, however, be remembered that there are two modes of conducting business at these bazaars, there is the travelling merchant who roams about, and there is the stationary merchant who remains always behind her counter. It is not to be supposed that the Duchess of St. Bungay spent the afternoon rushing about with a lucky bag. The Duchess was a stationary trader, and so were all the ladies who belonged to the Mackenzie booth. Miss Mackenzie, the lamb, had been much regarded, and consequently the things at her disposal had been quickly sold. It had all seemed to her to be very wonderful, and as the fun grew fast and furious, as the young girls became eager in their attacks, she made up her mind that she would never occupy another stall at a bazaar. One incident, and but one, occurred to her during the day, and one person came to her that she knew, and but one. It was nearly six, and she was beginning to think that the weary work must soon be over, when, on a sudden, she found Sir John Ball standing beside her. "'Oh, John,' she said, startled by his presence, "'who would have thought of seeing you here?' "'And why not me, as well as any other fool of my age?' "'Because you think it foolish,' she answered, "'and I suppose the others don't.' "'Why should you say that I think it foolish? "'At any rate, I'm glad to see you looking so nice and happy.' "'I don't know about being happy,' said Margaret, "'or nice either, for the matter of that.' "'But there was a smile on her face as she spoke, 
and Sir John smiled also when he saw it. "'Doesn't she look well in that bonnet?' said Mrs. Mackenzie, turning round to the side of the counter at which he was standing. "'It was my choice, and I absolutely made her wear it. If you knew the trouble I had.' "'It is very pretty,' said Sir John. "'Is it not? And are you not very much obliged to me? I'm sure you ought to be, for nobody before has ever taken the trouble of finding out what becomes her most.' As for herself, she's much too well-behaved a young woman to think of such vanities. "'Not at present, certainly,' said Margaret. "'And why not at present? She looks on those lawyers and their work as though there were something funereal about them. You ought to teach her better, Sir John.' "'All that will be over in a day or two now,' said he. "'And then she will shake off her dowdiness and her gloom altogether.' said Mrs. Mackenzie. "'Do you know, I fancy she has a liking for pretty things at heart, as well as another woman.' "'I hope she has.' "'Of course you do. What is a woman worth without it? Don't be angry, Margaret, but I say a woman is worth nothing without it, and Sir John will agree with me if he knows anything about the matter. But, Margaret, why don't you make him buy something?' He can't refuse you if you ask him. If Miss Mackenzie could thereby have provided for all the negro soldiers' orphans in existence, I do not think that she could at that moment have solicited him to make a purchase. Come, Sir John, continued Mrs. Mackenzie, you must buy something of her. What do you say to this paper-knife? How much does the paper-knife cost? said he, smiling. It was a large, elaborate, and perhaps, I may say, unwieldy affair, with a great elephant at the end of it. "'Oh, that is terribly dear,' said Margaret. "'It costs two pounds ten. Thereupon he put his hand into his pocket, and, taking out his purse, gave her a five-pound note. "'We never give change,' said Mrs. Mackenzie. "'Do we, Margaret?' "'I'll give him change,' said Margaret.' "'I'll be extravagant for once,' said Sir John, "'and let you keep the whole.' "'Oh, John,' said Margaret. "'You have no right to scold him yet,' said Mrs. Mackenzie. Margaret, when she heard this, blushed up to her forehead, and in her confusion forgot all about the paper-knife and the money. Sir John, I fancy, was almost as much confused himself, and was quite unable to make any fitting reply.' But just at that moment there came across two harpies from the realms of Mrs. Chaucer Munro, eagerly intent upon their prey. "'Here are the lion and the lamb together,' said one harpy. "'The lion must buy a rose to give to the lamb. "'Sir Lion, the rose is but a poor half-crown.' And she tendered him a battered flower, leering at him from beneath her draggled, dusty bonnet, as she put forth her untempting hand for the money. "'Sir Lion, Sir Lion,' said the other harpy, "'I want your name for a raffle.' But the lion was off, having pushed the first harpy aside somewhat rudely. That tale of the lion and the lamp had been very terrible to him, but never till this occasion had any one dared to speak of it directly to his face. But what will not a harpy do? 
who has become wild and dirty and disgusting in the pursuit of half-crowns. "'Now he is angry,' said Margaret. "'Oh, Mrs. Mackenzie, why did you say that?' "'Yes, he is angry,' said Mrs. Mackenzie, "'but not with you or me. Upon my word, I thought he would have pushed that girl over, and if he had, he would only have served her right.' "'But why did you say that? You shouldn't have said it.' "'About your not scolding him yet? I said it, my dear, because I wanted to make myself certain. I was almost certain before, but now I am quite certain.' "'Certain of what, Mrs. Mackenzie?' "'That you'll be a baronet's wife before me, and entitled to be taken out of a room first, as long as dear old Sir Walter is alive.' Soon after that the bazaar was brought to an end, and it was supposed to have been the most successful thing of the kind ever done in London. Loud boasts were made that more than eight hundred pounds had been cleared, but whether any orphans of any negro soldiers were ever the better for the money, I am not able to say. End of chapter 27